Who is the King of glory? He is the God who can accomplish whatever he decrees in his will. No enemy can thwart his purposes. No circumstance can divert his counsel. No maverick molecule exists. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. We are going to begin a new series today uh, that is timely for our church, and it's timely for the season that we find ourselves in as we focus our attention on Christ the King. And so this morning, we are going to be studying Psalm 24, and we'll be taking communion later this morning. And what a joy it is to be together with you this morning. Let's read the scripture. Reading from the ESV, Psalm 24 says, A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads together. Our blessed Lord and King, as we approach your throne of grace this morning, we seek your face and we long for your presence. And we come before you this morning, not according to our own merit, not in a righteousness that comes from the law or from ourselves, certainly, but a righteousness which only comes by faith in Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us what it means to be true worshipers today as we open your timeless, precious word together with your people on this Lord's Day. It's for your glory and the glory of your name among the nations that we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a story that has been going around, and around 50 years in England, it's, uh, it's an urban legend. You can snope it. It's not a true thing that happened, but uh, I still found it a little comical and wanted to share it because I think it opens up our sermon this morning well. But there's this story, and the story somehow goes that there's a, a leader of parliament, and his name is Neil. Uh, in the more recent modern era, Neil Martin was the guy who made the news for this little legend. But the way the story goes, Neil Martin is walking a group of American tourists through British Parliament. Uh, and suddenly, during the course of this visit, the group uh, happened to meet up Lord Hailsham, or, or a very important Lord Chancellor, who's wearing all the regalia of the office. And so 
what the story says is that Hailsham recognized Neil Martin across the room and approached him and started calling out his name, Neil, Neil. Well, all of the American tourists heard the words Neil, and so they quickly thought it's appropriate to get down on bended knee and kneel before him. And so uh, it's not a true story, but uh, like those American tourists, it seems as though people today are very quick to bow for any authority and all authority. We, we are either bent towards absolute subjugation or anarchy. In fact, if we were given the choice between order or freedom, I think people actually would desire order more than they would chaos. We reside in a nation, after all, that broke away from the overreach of king and country that exerted its rule unjustly. And so for most of us, the concept of being subject to a king, that sounds about as foreign as Britain or Saudi Arabia. So when we hear that phrase, king or kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, Jesus is king, Christ is king, God is king, that actually may be more challenging for us as a concept to grasp. Now, when we think about the word kingdom, we might think that's not really in the Bible very much, is it? It's certainly not in the Bible as much as maybe faith, hope, or love, at least in our minds. And yet, when we do a quick survey of the Old Testament, we find the word king or kingship is mentioned over 2,500 times in the Old and 275 times in the New. Gordon Fee made this audacious claim where he said, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. So as we approach this Advent season, Advent simply means arrival, I want us to look, as of course we do during Christmas time, at the first Advent, the first arrival of Jesus Christ through the lens, though, of him as the coming king. And that is the series title that we're going to be going through these different texts throughout Scripture. We're going to be expositing different texts. It's not a topical uh, series. This is a a verse-by-verse exposition of several different texts. We'll be in Psalm 24 today, and we'll be asking and answering the question as we build on these different texts. Today we begin with, who is this king? Who is the king of glory? Next week, we're going to see how earth must receive her king as we look at John chapter 1. And then for our third study, we're going to look at a variety of Old Testament prophecies about the coming king, and we're going to learn what does it mean to rejoice as we conclude this year and go into a new year, because Emmanuel, our king, has come to us, and he will never leave us. And that's going to be a word of comfort and encouragement the week before Christmas. Then on Christmas Eve, we invite you to come out to the candlelighting service downtown. We'll be studying Gabriel's words to Mary where if you remember there in Luke 1, it says that Jesus will sit on the throne of his father David and his kingdom will have no end. And then finally on Christmas morning, we invite you back to join us as we worship the Lord on Sunday, Christmas morning. We have our 1045 service and we are gonna study Isaiah 9, 6 particularly and see how all government rests upon his shoulder because Jesus our King is our wonderful counselor and our mighty God. So, That's where we're going with the series for this morning. We're going to fix our attention on Psalm 24. And as we open this psalm, there's a few important things I'd love for you to jot down if you're taking note. First, the book of Psalms that we're reading this from is, of course, the hymn book for God's people. As his children, we can never exhaust the content in the Psalms. Now, I've said this before, but if I only had one book of the Bible and I somehow were marooned on a deserted island, 
If I only had one book, I'd want How to Survive on a Deserted Island. But if I only had one Bible book, I would want the Psalms. I would want that companion with me so that I, every day, morning, noon, and evening, can declare God's praise. Now, a close second, of course, would be the book of Romans, if we're being honest here. But the Psalms, as a book, are the, is the largest book in our Bibles. And from the verses uh, that command us to give thanks to the Lord and rejoice, to the Psalms of lament, to the songs of praise, there's always a timely song. For whatever season we're in, there's always a timely song. And God has created us, as I prayed earlier, with lungs and with vocal cords to sing. All told, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing, and there's 50 direct commands to sing. So it's not just a nice thing for us to do Sunday morning. No, we're commanded to lift our voices together corporately. So that's the first thing I want you to note. Secondly, as we open this psalm, Psalm 24, the heading says, A Psalm of David. The notes above verse 1 tell us this, and this is important that we always read those notes. Sometimes they give context clues. At least 116 different psalms have the little note above the first verse of the psalm. And so the 150 different psalms that we have are written by a variety of people, people like Asaph. He wrote about 12 psalms. A group of guys known as the sons of Korah wrote about 11. Solomon wrote two. Moses wrote Psalm 90. And then two honorary notable guys named Heman and Ethan, they each wrote a psalm. Now, there's about 48 anonymous psalms, but exactly half, 75, that we can confirm were written by King David. Thirdly, I want us to understand as we open Psalm 24 that it's believed by many that this psalm was the psalm sung on Sundays by the priests in the post-exilic era in the temple. So as the priests came together on Sunday, they would call out Psalm 24. In fact, they would read these variety of psalms, as you can see on the screen, but Sunday was Psalm 24. In fact, this psalm is a part of a special trilogy of psalms that begin in Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And these psalms may perhaps be the most beloved psalms in or by the church. In fact, if you note here on the screen, Psalm 22 gives Jesus a picture of Jesus as servant. Psalm 23, of course, he's the shepherd. In Psalm 24, God is sovereign. We see that there's suffering in Psalm 22, there's providing in Psalm 23, and there's reigning in Psalm 24. We see that there's a cross as we study Psalm 22, a crook in Psalm 23 that is owned by the shepherd, and a crown for Psalm 24. Now, just one more note. If you look at this psalm, you're going to note there's a lot of similarities between this and Psalm 15. And so you want to jot that down because that's for good reason. Scott Aniel from G3 says this. He says, the editors play Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 intentionally to form an inclusio. He says they both deal with the same questions and the same answers. And here it is. Only a perfect, righteous, perfectly righteous person may ascend the hill and dwell in the presence of of the Lord. On the G3 website, Aniel goes on to say that much of the characteristics of this perfectly righteous person are found between Psalm 15 and 24. So if you go and read those Psalms, you'll see who it is that truly can ascend the hill of the Lord. And so for that and ultimate other reasons, some believe that this 
uh, or these particular psalms in this section of the Psalter were read when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into battle, and they concluded with Psalm 23 or 24 as the Ark is returned into the temple. And that certainly is possible because Psalm 24, as we just read, is all about the power and the sovereignty and the holiness and the might of the true King of Kings. In a word, he is the King of glory. But listen, this psalm is not just about the worshiper entering into the temple. It's about the King of glory entering into it as well. Who is this King of glory? We're going to see three important things about him in this psalm, if you're taking note. We're going to see that the king of glory, first of all, decrees that all creation belongs to him. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. And then we'll see the king of glory defines who it is that may draw near in verses 3 through 6. And then finally, we'll see the king of glory does desire to be with his people in verses 7 through 10. So, With that as a bit of a template, we're going to start with this first section. The king of glory decrees that all creation belongs to him. Look at verse 1 with me. The earth is Yahweh's, and I'm going to read when it's all caps Lord's, that is the name of God, Yahweh. I'm going to read it on purpose that way. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, the way this reads in the Hebrew, it reads this way. The Lord's earth. So it begins, we read it in English, the earth is the Lord's. In Hebrew, it reads with Yahweh as the first word of the psalm. The Lord's earth, Yahweh's world, and the fullness thereof, and everyone who dwells therein. Who does the earth and everything and everyone in it belong to? Not to themselves. As much as popular culture would say, you define your own identity. Uh, Not to the government, as much as the government would say, you're our citizens, you do what we tell you to do. No, everything and everyone in the earth and on the earth belong to Yahweh. Is there anything outside of the jurisdiction uh, of the Lord? Well, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, if God is not sovereign, God is not God. If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then ladies and gentlemen, there's not the slightest confidence that you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. Wow, that's a pretty audacious claim, and yet it's true. There's not a single maverick molecule God is king, the earth belongs to him. And notice that he speaks about the fact that he has created it. Uh, He is the creator. And so just for a moment, notice on the screen, you can jot this verse down, Colossians 1, 15, more specifically speaks of Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominion, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him, and then all things were created for him. And so the earth belongs to the Lord. All things were created by him. And so Paul in Colossians 1 there unpacks that. He says, everything, things that are in heaven, things that are on earth, things that are visible that we can see physically, 
that takes up matter and space, as well as the spiritual world we cannot see, all things, all of heaven, all the angels, all the vastness of space, all the stars in every single galaxy, every planet, every moon. Here on earth, the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the oxygen that your lungs have been inhaling and you didn't even notice, the lungs that are inhaling the oxygen, the ground that's underneath your feet and the feet that rest upon the ground this morning. It was all created by him and for him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We read in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. That seems pretty exclusive. We'll study that text next week. So not only is Jesus the agent of creation's existence, he's also the object of creation's worship. All things were created by him and for him. The earth belongs to him. You and I belong to the Lord and the fullness thereof. Now, in one sense, this present world is under the influence of Satan. Paul calls him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. You remember in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Satan was tempting Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And this is what the devil said to him. He said, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. How did he have the authority? How did he have the right to say that? Jesus didn't question that or say, you're mistaken. He simply quoted scripture as he did the other two times and then commanded Satan to leave him. And so Though there is a sense of satanic jurisdiction over the world systems, the kingdoms of the world, it is all still subservient to God's authority. There's no maverick molecule in the universe. And verse 2 says the world belongs to God. Why? Because he founded it. Notice what it says. It says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Because God is the creator, he is the owner. He's the designer, and he is the one that it belongs to. Now, verse 2 is a poetic way of referring to Genesis 1-9 in the creation account, which we studied earlier this year, specifically the third day when land was separated from ocean water. Now, David is writing this in his proximity uh, there in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the Middle East, near the Mediterranean Sea, But from what we understand historically, David never got out onto the ocean. He never made it to the Pacific, to the Atlantic, certainly to the Indian. And so he may not have seen the earth from outer space, but the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this scientific truth that the earth is in the midst of waters instead of waters in the midst of land. The earth is the Lord and it belongs to him, the fullness thereof. Why? Because he's the creator. He founded it. He established it. And so the king of glory decrees that everything belongs to him. You and I are under his jurisdiction. You may not give thought to him if you're an unbeliever. You may have woken up this morning and been invited to church. You haven't thought through the implications of being designed by him and for his glory. And yet it's true. Now, let's look at the second section. And it asks the first of three questions. The first of three questions is who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh. And so I want us to see in the second section, the king of glory defines who it is that may draw near. Notice verse three. The question is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? 
and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, the king of glory is not someone you barge in on. He created all things. He's to be worshiped. He's to be honored. He's to be revered. He's to be submitted to. He is imminent, and yet he's transcendent. Mankind in his wicked state does not have unfettered access to stand in God's glorious presence apart from the reason or the qualifications that God has given, has permitted. There are prerequisites to ascending near his throne. In fact, I draw your attention to the word ascend here in verse 3. There is actually a physical, real sense of ascension when you walk into Jerusalem. Because in comparison to the Dead Sea, in comparison to Jericho, in comparison to the Mediterranean, and to the surrounding countryside in Israel, the city of Jerusalem is at a much higher elevation. I think we have a a small graphic here. If you can see the Dead Sea there in that little divot, you have the Mediterranean, but then you have this, this, this ascension to Jerusalem going up literally the hill of the Lord, the mountain of God. And there were at least three important times a year that the Jews would make their way to worship in Jerusalem. They would come for the Feast of Passover, they would come for the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would come for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And the roads leading into Jerusalem were not like I-75. These were paths. These were off-road for our vernacular. And these were very dangerous, sometimes impassable roads, very difficult roads uphill. And so for that reason, you would never travel alone. You just have to read the story of the Good Samaritan to know that. You would travel together with a band of people, large groups and as families. And so as the joyful procession of families, of crowds of worshipers would climb higher and higher in their ascent to Jerusalem, they would sing songs together. And many times these would be from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These are known as the songs, uh, Psalms of Ascent. Now when we think about this, this idea of ascending the hill of the Lord, There's actually a theme here outside of this verse throughout the Bible, a theme of holy hills or holy mountains. And I find this study to be very fascinating. We don't have time to go into depth here, but I want to at least list it to you so you can jot these down quickly, or if you have a phone, take a quick picture of the slide if the slides are working. This theme is throughout Scripture. In fact, it begins with the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis 2.10 that one, two rivers divert into four. That really only happens at high elevations. And Ezekiel 28 tells us that you are on the mountain of Eden. And so we begin the Bible on a mountain. We see what happens with the fall of man and how man and his relationship to Yahweh is, of course, divided, strained, uh, and in a sense lost in the Garden of Eden. And so he has to exit Eden, go east of Eden, go down uh, and descend from the hill of the Lord. But then, as we studied recently in Genesis 22, we have another ascension. We have the ascension as this man of God separated from all the nations. Abraham brings his only son, his beloved son, up to Mount Moriah, which would become Jerusalem. And there in Genesis 22, we read, the, le- the Lord will provide himself the lamb, a great foreshadowing of the cross. This is a place of worship. Later, we see in Genesis 19, we see God's... Uh, chosen people Israel ascending, at least Moses did. They weren't even allowed to touch the mountain. But we see this 
very ominous mountain where the law was given, Mount Sinai. This is a place where God met with his people through his servant Moses. And then later, we see in the New Testament, there's many more, but again, I'm just doing a brief survey. We see in the New Testament in Matthew 17, where we sort of left off last week in our study of Matthew 16, we see Jesus ascending what's believed to be Mount Tabor, and we see him transfigured. So we see a picture of this this lamb, and we see a, a, a weightier glory. We see Moses testifying there with Elijah that, hey, we've got someone who is more worthy uh, to receive our worship. Then in John 19, we see Jesus ascending to Mount Calvary as he carries his cross, and then, of course, Simon is compelled to carry it. Later, after his resurrection, we see him on the Mount of Olives in Acts 1, 1 through 19, where he then gives the Great Commission and ascends to the Father. And finally, throughout Scripture in Psalm 2, Hebrews 12, Revelation 21, and and many other places, we see Mount Zion. And that is a picture of his kingdom. And and so we have this great picture of, of the holy mountain, the holy hill of the Lord. And here's what Psalm 48 says about Zion. It says, great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king. So when we read these words, I want to set that up. When we read these words, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The question is not about mountain climbing. It's about the right to stand before the glorious presence of the king of kings. The second half of verse 3 clarifies the location. It is in the holy place in the temple where God's presence resided. Who on earth is worthy to draw near Almighty God? Who has the right to stand here in the presence of his perfect holiness? You and I know, friends, the world doesn't ask that question. The world is not eaten up with losing sleep, inquiring, what must I do to get right with the holy God? They're not asking that question. Instead, the fallen human heart is wondering, what must I do to be happy? And the irony is that our ultimate fulfillment is in being right with God. You see, the psalmist in chapter 16, verse 11 said, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to ascend the hill, to stand there before the Lord is the ultimate joy, but there is a qualification. Who is worthy? Who's qualified? Who's cleared to draw near to the king of glory? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, He or she who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. One commentary points out that hands, tongue, and heart are all listed here, and they're all organs of action, speech, and feeling. And these three compose one's character. You see, God's kingdom is a moral kingdom. It's one whose beloved citizens are not just obedient, but they're clean. They're not defiled. They're not just those who have clean hands, though. They also have a pure heart. There are countless people who could say, I have, a clean, I have clean hands like Pilate, but their hearts are not pure. Only the Spirit of God can take deceitfully wicked hearts and purify them. So we read this and we go, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know if I pass the test here. Clean hands this week, a pure heart. 
Well, it gets worse. Notice that the acceptable worshiper does not lift up their soul to what is false, nor do they swear deceitfully. So to lift up your soul to something is to put your trust in it. David in an earlier psalm would say, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In other words, I place my trust in you. Now, we don't like to use the word idolatry, but how many people in our community lift up their souls to idols, lift up their souls to fitness, lift up their souls to wealth, to beauty, to power, to influence, to fame, to lust, to control, to comfort. There may not be altars of incense in their homes where they come by and light a candle and pay homage, but idolatry is alive and well today. And so he says, the one who can stand before the Lord has to have a heart that's not lifted up to an idol. But finally, it has to be someone who's honest in their dealings with God and man. They've not sworn deceitfully, meaning there's no unbroken promises. There are no violated confidences. There are no actions that contradict what had been agreed upon. Can anyone here this morning say, I have never broken faith. I have never let anyone down. I have never sworn I would do something and then failed to do it. You see, the one who is in this devoted, clean, pure, and true condition with no hidden guile, they and they alone may approach his throne with confidence. Well, notice what verse 5 promises the worshiper. It says, He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, other translations here, instead of blessing, they have the word vindication. And it's understood by many that this blessing, this righteousness, or this vindication from the saving God is the same concept that we as Protestants call justification by faith. So, let me be clear here. This does not mean if you keep your hands clean, if you keep your heart pure, if you keep the idols away, and if you keep your lying away, then you earn your salvation. David Dixon, a 17th century Scottish man, wrote these verses, uh, wrote of these verses. He says this, we don't have this on the screen, quote, the holy life of the true believer is not the cause of his justification before God. Thank you, Jesus. But he shall receive justification and eternal life as a free gift from God by virtue of the covenant of grace. Therefore, it is said here that he shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, I don't want you to be confused here. And again, walk away going, okay, the only way I can receive righteousness is to be in this place of holiness. I have to do that. I think it's, Uh, helpful to do what James Montgomery Boyce suggests. He says, try reading these verses inverted from back to front. So verse five, the worshiper who has been saved by God, who has been justified, vindicated by faith, will be, verse four, cleansed and purified. He'll now lift up his soul, not to what is false, but he'll walk in the truth, which verse three qualifies him to stand before the Lord. That's perhaps why Spurgeon said of verse 6, he says, such is the regeneration of those who seek him. Not just the generation, but the regeneration. We need to be regenerated. We must be made new in order to stand before the Lord. So verse 6 does say, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then we have a Selah, which is just a poetic 
uh, instruction to pause for, and to reflect. Just take a minute and think about this. David, the writer, the king, is describing the people who adore and approach Yahweh in his glory because the God of salvation has invited them to come. This is the generation who seeks you, who seek your face. Richard Sibb says heaven, quote, is a generation of finders, possessors, enjoyers, but here we're just a generation of seekers, end quote. So we seek God's face that we may behold him, that we may see him in his glory. And yet, what's the reality here on earth? No sinful man can see God face to face and live. And so we find ourselves in a bit of a quandary. As we read this verse, this should be maybe causing us to be, in a good way, a little anxious. Wait, I'm not qualified. In my own righteousness, in my own standing before God, we should say in my unrighteousness, I dare not ascend the hill of the Lord. Who am I to approach a holy God with unclean hands, with an impure heart, with a heart that has lifted its soul up to idols and has not been true? I won't receive blessing from the Lord, but judgment. And so this should be perhaps a little bit ominous for us. And yet the final section is what gives us hope. Look at this last section. The king of glory desires to be with his people. You see, if the first part of Psalm 24 showcases the greatness of God, and the second section reveals how we can come into his presence, which is not on our own, apart from an invitation, apart from perfect righteousness, which is imputed to us, then this last section is now those justified righteous people welcoming God to be among us. And there are several lines, as you noted, uh, that are repeated here for emphasis. Verses 7 and 9 are identical. Verses 8 and 10 are similar, but they, they do ask the same question, and they provide the same answer, but they each give a different emphasis. And so this is the moment, verses 7 through 10, this seems to be the moment when God's presence represented in the ark is coming back into the city of Jerusalem, back among his people after a time a victorious battle. Now, when King David was finally inaugurated after the death of Saul, the Ark of the Covenant, which had been constructed about 400 years prior, the Ark had been sitting in the house of Abinadab for about 20 years. It had just been sitting there collecting dust. And then it took about a three-month sabbatical at the household of Obed-Edom. And that was because of what we know as the Uzzah moment, U-Z-Z-A-H, Uzzah. Uzzah, or however you pronounce his name, he had touched the ark, if you remember from the scripture, when it was about to fall. It was going to fall off of the cart, and so he reached out his hand to steady it. And what happened was God struck him, and he died. It seemed like he had the right heart, didn't it? I mean, Uzzah wanted to protect the ark from falling on the ground. Wasn't he safeguarding God's integrity in the, in the ark? Well, see, the problem is Uzzah thought anyone can handle the ark. But the question is, Uzzah, do you not know God's word? God had commanded in Numbers 4.15, if you touch any of the holy things, you will die. So what makes you think your hand is more holy than the ground? God has promised that this will happen. Why are you not regarding God's word? 
Uzzah, why are you showing contempt for the care and the exactness of worshiping God? Who are you to help God along when he's already commanded how he's to be worshiped? Don't you know God's word? You see, Uzzah's blood cries out to the modern church and says, learn from my fatal mistake. We don't approach God and say, well, I know this is what he's said and commanded how he's to be worshiped, but we can improve on that method a bit. This is a bit dated. Let's improve on the method. And hey, why don't we try something that seems to be working in Hollywood? And so King David in that story wanted to bring the ark, which represented the immediate presence of God and thus the glory of God among his people. He wanted to bring it out of obscurity back into the center center of spiritual life in Israel. And he wanted the temple to once again house the presence and glory of God. And so listen to these words from uh, 2 Samuel 6 and try to get a sense, if you would, of the joy of the ark being gone for a generation, for 20 years and now being brought back in. Listen to these words. It was told King David, Yahweh has blessed the household of Obed-Edom where the ark was camped out for three months and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This was a glorious moment of rejoicing. God's presence represented in the ark is brought back into the temple. So look how the city responds to the king's arrival here in verse 7 of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. This is personification. The gates aren't literally living. The doors can't necessarily be lifted up, but it's a, it's a, it's a sign of exaltation. Israel, Jerusalem, worship. Why? That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. And so verse 8 tells us who is this king of glory. He's Yahweh, but notice there's two different descriptions. First, strong and mighty, and then mighty in battle. Now this phrase is very similar to a phrase that's used in Moses' song in Exodus 15. Remember, they witnessed the Red Sea incident where Pharaoh's army was destroyed and Israel was delivered. That was the final step of deliverance for Moses and Israel. And it says there, Moses says that God is a warrior, or in the ESV, God is a man of war. In other words, there is, he is strong and mighty, mighty in battle. There's nothing impossible for God. Who is the king of glory? He is the God who can accomplish whatever he decrees in his will. No enemy can thwart his purposes. No circumstance can divert his counsel. No maverick molecule exists. What a glorious comfort for us as his people to know that he is almighty, he is sovereign, but he's good. And so verse 10 repeats the question. Not only is he Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Verse 10, who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now this phrase, Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, means that God commands the armies of heaven. I've said this before at Christmas, the heavenly host 
is not an angelic butler. It's the vast army uh, of angels that's always at the ready to fight the wicked satanic anti-kingdom. So thus, in light of Yahweh's arrival to and among his people, David invites us once again to take a selah, to take a break, to take a time to reflect. And as we do that for just a minute this morning, in light of Advent, in light of what we celebrate this time of year at Christmas, as we think on these truths, inviting the King of glory, inviting us to welcome him in, as we just sang, to prepare him room. You see, church, David here was singing about something far more powerful than just the ark entering Jerusalem. You see, just a minute earlier, we learned that the post-exilic priests would sing Psalm 24. When? Do you remember? Anybody remember? Sunday mornings. Post-exile Israel, the priest in the temple on Sundays would sing Psalm 24. Let's connect some dots here. When did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the foal, the, uh, the donkey? It was on Palm Sunday. So listen to these words from Matthew 21. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That means save now. Our Messiah is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. And it says in verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? As the people are laying down palm branches, as Jesus and their cloaks are laid there and on the donkey, Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, walking into the city gates. Just across the way in the temple, the priests were singing out, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You see, this time of year, we remember the first advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory, who came to tabernacle among men. The King of glory who desires to fellowship with his people, to be with us, to be Emmanuel, the God who is among his people. The hope of Israel is also the hope of the nations, that our covenant-keeping God who sent his Son to redeem us will never leave us. And so we welcome him, we receive him by faith, and we seek his glorious face. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, all things created by him and for him, including you and I. We were created to worship him, but we dare not come brazenly with unclean hands with impure hearts. You see, this morning, church, it is impossible to ascend the hill of the Lord rightly apart from the imputed righteousness of God's Son. And that's imputed to us, not by works, but by faith. This description in Psalm 24.4 is impossible, essentially, for any sinner to fulfill. We need someone else. We need the anointed son of David to ascend the hill. David's son is also David's Lord, and he alone may approach Yahweh face to face because he alone was without sin. Spurgeon said, Our Lord Jesus Christ could ascend into the hill of the Lord, because his hands were clean and his heart was pure. And if we by faith in him are conformed to his image, we shall enter too. 
In just a moment this morning, we're going to have a time of singing and we're going to distribute some elements to you, the bread and the cup. They're represented in these trays with two cups. You just take both of them out and hold on to them. And this is for believers only, those who are in the covenant community of faith, those who have repented of their sin and trusted Christ as our Savior and Lord. We're going to take some time to reflect on our Savior for just a minute, singing hallelujah, what a Savior. But I want us to be reminded as we're singing these lyrics what Christ has done for us and what our response should be. Listen to these words from what we're about to sing. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then as we look ahead, we have our first advent, but as we look ahead to his second arrival, his second coming, we have these words. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew his song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. As we think about our lives during this season, this month, we know that this is not the only time that we give worship and rejoice in the king of glory, but it is a special time to do that. And so we want to invite you and encourage you this morning and this Advent season to be lifted up, to welcome him in, to receive him as Savior, as King, to give him the worship that's due his name, and yes, to kneel, because he alone is worthy. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, as the ushers come this morning and our hearts are preparing for receiving the elements of communion, we acknowledge that the cradle became the cross, became the grave, and ultimately you were crowned with glory and with honor. This morning we crown you king because you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We confess, Lord, that we often have unclean hands and impure hearts, that we do lift our souls to what is false and we speak so many things of deceit. Father, forgive us. And we can only pray forgive us because of the merits of Christ. And so this morning, we thank you that Jesus has clean hands and a pure heart. He has only done what pleased the Father, and he only spoke truth. And Lord, as John would say in 1 John, we are in him who is true. So Lord, we have clean hands. We have pure hearts. And we can ascend the hill because of Christ. Lord, thank you for that truth this morning as we're reminded of the sacrifice that you performed on our behalf. As you rode into Jerusalem and people cried out, Hosanna, with just a matter of hours, you would be crucified. And you would save now, but it wouldn't be through conquering and through might, but through suffering and sacrifice. And so we want to take a minute this morning as we open up this special time of year to remember the reason for your first coming, and that was to bear our sin at Calvary. So Lord, we take this time with sobriety to thank you and to worship you in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.